Hello, and welcome to episode 96 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. Okay, this week is just absolutely crazy. I just have to put that out there. This week has been insane. First of all, we are recording virtually. Second of all, (laughs) mom's recording in Hawaii, and I'm recording in a COVID-filled home in Kansas City. (laughs) I think I'm happy that I'm where I'm at. (laughs) Although things are just not, you know, at home, I've got everything. It's a place for everything. Right now. Like when you're recording? Yes. Right now I'm in this theater space and nothing is where it's supposed to be. Oh, champagne problems, mom. (laughs) I know. I know. I have a four-month-old who just had all of his little vaccine shots, so he's miserable. I have a husband and a five-year-old who are quarantined in my basement (laughs) (laughs) sounds like I've locked them away and I have me and the three-year-old Nolan are doing just fine and dandy but I have to keep him busy and not wanting his older brother and father so this has just been uh it's real fun over here mom so sorry that you're not comfortable recording in your theater in Hawaii (laughs) all righty but all is well, and I hope all of you listeners are doing well with this new surge oh, out there. Stupid variant, boy. It is just hopping from one person to another. It is. But if you are new, this is Killer Hangover. We do true crime, paranormal, and cocktails. I am telling the true crime story this week for the state of Illinois, and Mom is telling the true cri- No. <laughs> See? COVID brain. And I don't even have COVID. She is sharing the paranormal story and the cocktail this week. Mom, what are you drinking? I'm sitting over here drinking a good old Michelob Ultra, so, you know, Ooh. classy. Ooh. What are you drinking? <laughs> I decided I was going to go with the Old Fashioned. That's the name of it, by the way. <laughs> I, okay, yes. Uh, it's supposedly one of the most famous and oldest of Chicago cocktails. Really? So, that's what I went with. And the lovely people that we are staying with actually had everything on hand. So, hey. (laughs) Lucky you. Again, you see your champagne problems over there. No problem. No problem. Um, I kind of used a shortcut, though, uh, because it's easier. (laughs) Shortcuts usually are. (laughs) there, There actually is like a mix, a cocktail mixer that you can get for this. And I use that instead of all the ingredients. I've never had the best luck with those pre-mixed cocktail things. Is this one pretty good? Which one are you using? I'm using the Eli Mason Old Fashioned Cocktail Mixer. It's from Nashville, Tennessee. We'll post a picture, of course, of all these things, but uh, it's it's pretty easy. (laughs) And then I'm using a Knob Creek Kentucky Bourbon. It's a two to one. So basically two shots of the Kentucky Bourbon and one shot of the Old Fashioned Cocktail Mixer. You mix it throw in a couple ice cubes, voila, an old-fashioned. Make sure you say it with the Kentucky accent that mom tried to do, and I'm failing at as well. Well, cheers to you, mom. Cheers. I'll enjoy this. You enjoy your beer. Thank you, mom. Oh, I will. Well, this is good, but I don't think you'd like it anyway, so there you go. Actually, no. (laughs) 
Actually, no. Actually, no. Okay. So, let's just jump right into the true crime, shall we? Let's do. This week's true crime is not a missing persons case this week. <laughs> Lo and behold, we're switching it up. <laughs> but it is another unsolved case. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. So I will begin the story on September 29th, 1982 in Arlington Heights, a suburb of Chicago. 27-year-old Adam Janus woke up that morning with symptoms of a cold. He felt, oh God, COVID. Oh, jeez. <laughs> this is 1982. This is before COVID. Jeez, Louise, I've got COVID on the brain. He felt yucky enough to take the day off from his job as a postal worker. He rested most of the morning. He told his wife he would make the run to go pick up their two kiddos from preschool because he wanted to make a stop at the Jewel, a local drugstore, to get some cold medicine and Tylenol for his cold. When they got back, they had some lunch, and then he said, I'm going to take two Tylenol and lie down. A couple minutes later, Adam came staggering into the kitchen, collapsing on the floor. He then became unresponsive with very labored breathing. He was rushed to the hospital where he was pronounced dead by 3.15 that afternoon. Dr. Kim tried his best to resuscitate Adam, but his heart would just not work. He claimed the death was probably due to a cardiac arrest. Uh Adam's family and friends gathered at the hospital for some time, and then they all went to Adam's house in support of his wife and their two young children. I mean, this was like a total shock. He was 27. Well, yeah. Healthy. He just had a cold. And now he's dead. Oh. And I mean, the doctor told them cardiac arrest, but I don't think he was even so sure about that. Right. The family is in total grief. Adam's younger brother, Stanley, had chronic back pain. And he asked his wife, side note, this is just kind of weird, but Adam the one who's deceased, his wife's name was Teresa. And then his younger brother, Stanley's wife's name was also Teresa. Okay. (laughs) I'll try to follow. (laughs) I just found that really silly. Like what if Katie and I were both married to somebody named Alex? That would just be, I don't don't know why I found that so bizarre. I don't, I just found that silly. So, Anyway, Stanley, who was 25, suffered from some really bad back pains. And so he asked his right, his wife. Oh, my God. That (laughs) That beer is getting to you. (laughs) He asked his wife, Teresa, if she would go in search for some Tylenol for his back. I don't like the way this is sounding. She goes and gets the bottle off of the bathroom sink. She takes two pills for her husband and pops two pills herself. Oh. Within less than a minute. The couple are on the ground. (gasps) Teresa suffering a severe convulsive seizure and Stanley unresponsive. Paramedics were called, but there was nothing they could do. Wait, you said within a minute? Within minutes. Oh my gosh. Dr. Kim, the doctor that worked on Adam Janus, Mm -hmm. was just ending his day when a nurse told him that the Janus family was all back in the hospital. Now, this is a quote from him. Quote, As I was putting on my blue blazer to leave around 5.30, a nurse told me that they were bringing the Janice family back. And I said, well, it's probably the parents because they were feeble and they might have been very upset. And the nurse said, no, it's his brother. I had been talking to this six foot healthy guy 
And I said, well, what happened? Did he faint? And she said, they're doing CPR and they're working on his wife too. And that's when I took my blazer off. Oh my gosh. Stanley Janice was pronounced dead shortly after his arrival at the hospital. Teresa Janice was in critical condition and would die the following day. But now all eyes are on the Janice family. An investigation began right away. I mean, the family were put under this heavy observation at the hospital and were even given their last rites because they believed that someone was going to die next. Holy smokes. They probably tore their house apart too, didn't they? Searching for, oh man. They were interrogated. They were questioned. They, I mean, they were under heavy observation. Several investigators came to the hospital to interview the family. Investigator Pichos was one of them. Now, in the investigation, they also needed a medical professional to help in some way. I, don't, I didn't understand why, but that's what it said in the Chicago Tribune, is that they needed a medical professional in the investigation. I don't know, but a nurse, Jensen, was brought in to fill that role. Um, maybe maybe if it's, if it's a medical, the detectives wouldn't have the medical knowledge so they probably sure. have to bring somebody who has the medical knowledge into the investigation. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. So they questioned the family. They questioned friends. And around 8 o'clock that night, they went to the Janice's house to check things out there. Mm. But there was nothing noticeable. They checked for mold, for carbon monoxide. Nurse Jensen and investigator Pichos remembered nothing of significance when they went to the house. Nothing that would make three people just die. Within minutes. She remembered a shelf full of over-the-counter medications and some prescription drugs, but nothing of real significance. Now, there off to the side was a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol. She raked her brain, racked her brain. I don't remember how we're supposed to pronounce that. I got made fun of last time. It's racked. (laughs) Okay, maybe I should never use the phrase again, but she racked her brain and put together, like, in the questioning you know they walked through like the day and like she walked through adam's last you know the hours and what they did she was there through that investigation and she was also there when they were questioning you know what was stanley doing in his last hours what was teresa doing in her last Mm -hmm. hours and then she noticed the common denominator the tylenol tylenol yep she checked out the bottle it was extra strength tylenol it was newer. It was only missing six capsules. She kind of assumed, you know, two for Adam, two for Stanley, and two for Teresa. Mm-hmm. She took the bottle back with them to the hospital. Now, all the investigators and Nurse Jensen, they're all back at the hospital discussing all the what ifs. And and she's like, you guys, this Tylenol has something to do with it. It has to. And they, they didn't quite believe her at first. But then investigator Pichos spoke up. That morning, there had been another death in another suburb of Chicago that was very mysterious. 6.30 that morning, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up feeling sick. Her parents told her she could stay home from school that day. They gave her a couple extra-strength Tylenol and sent her back to her room. Now, this is a quote from Dennis Kellerman, Mary's father. It was in the Chicago Tribune. Quote, I heard her go into the bathroom. I heard the door close. Then I heard something drop. I went to the bathroom door. I called, Mary, are you okay? There was no answer. I called again. Mary, are you okay? There was still no answer. So I opened the bathroom door 
and my little girl was on the floor unconscious. Oh, gosh. She would be pronounced dead at 9.56 a.m. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine that? No. (sighs) All three cases involved extra strength Tylenol. So both bottles were brought in to Pichos to investigate. Both were extra strength, and both were from lot MC2880, which was a Pennsylvania factory. May I ask a question here? Uh, Were Mm -hmm. they the capsules, or were they, like, the pills, you know? Great question, Mom. Wow, thank you, Beth. (laughs) Uh, They weren't, like, the gel caps or the pills. They were the ones that you could pull apart. yes. And had, um, like, a powdery substance inside. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the pill, yeah. So Pichos has these, and he pours both bottles out onto the table to investigate the capsules. And he noticed how both pill bottles smelt of almond. Almonds. Oh, my gosh. Now, Mom, do you know what smells of almond? Arsenic. <laughs> Potassium cyanide. Oh, yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I guess, like, only half of the population can smell cyanide. Really? They, like only, yeah, like only half of the population can smell that almond smell. That's interesting. It's not a, a from what I understand, it's not a um, a pure almond smell. It's almost like a... It's like a bitter almond a smell. A bitter, there you go. Bitter almond mm-hmm. smell. Yep, yep. I found that really interesting. Testing was done and now not all the pills contain cyanide. Only like maybe six to eight pills per bottle contained the cyanide. Oh capsules. my gosh, it's like Russian roulette. Yeah. And okay, so listen to this. Okay. Each each pill that did have the cyanide in it had the had the capacity. One pill could kill 1000 people. <gasps> no. One pill was like a thousand times over the lethal limit. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. So there was literally Nothing anybody could have ever done to rehabilitate to save these people. those people. No, no. I mean that is horrific. And they but took it was two one thousand times. Mm-hmm, it was one thousand times over the lethal limit. So that's why it happened in seconds. And in even minutes. if they had, if one of the pills was tampered with and the other not, it still would have killed them. One was just enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, Adam, Stanley, Teresa, and young Mary were not the only victims of the Tylenol. Mary Reiner was 27. She lived in another suburb of Chicago, Winfield. She had just given birth to her fourth child, a baby boy. As part of her postpartum, now, this is according to different resources. Uh, According to a couple resources, it was part of her, like, postpartum package that the hospital sent home with her. Yeah. had the extra strength Tylenol in it and other resources claim that she actually like a couple days after giving birth went to a drugstore and purchased herself yeah so yeah. I, I I cannot be for certain okay but regardless she ended up with the potassium cyanide oh, extra no. strength Tylenol uh, that she took for her postpartum pain she took two capsules on September 29th in the afternoon at around 3.30 and collapsed right away. She passed away shortly after that at the hospital. Around 6.30 that same day, September 29th, 31-year-old Mary McFarland told her co-workers that she had a headache. She went to the back and took a couple extra-strength Tylenol capsules from her purse that she had just purchased the day before. Oh my gosh. 
she collapsed on the floor shortly after. Paula Prince, a 35-year-old flight attendant, had just flown into O'Hare from Las Vegas. She made a quick stop at Walgreens to buy some Tylenol. Her body would not be discovered until October 1st. Her family had grown concerned for not hearing from her, and so police went to her apartment and found her body. Nearby was an open, extra-strength Tylenol bottle. There were seven deaths in all, three from one family, which is just horrific to me. Yeah, yeah. So, like I mentioned, the bottles were extra strength, and in the beginning, the batch number, the batch numbers all matched. But like I said, that Mary Rayner resources are all over. So either if her pills came from the hospital, they didn't know what that batch number was because they were given out, but. If it did come from the hospital, I didn't think that resource made quite didn't make the most sense to me. Because I don't think so either. Why weren't other people infected then? Right. Like why when didn't other people that, take those calls? I was like, calls? I don't. That that hospital thing doesn't make sense. But that's what a lot of resources said is that it was sent home. Maybe the whole bottle was sent home. Well, they usually was, like take so take two Tylenol or whatever, and you go out and get them. <laughs> Not unless you picked it up at the pharmacy at the hospital. Oh, that's true. True, but that's scary as heck. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. All of it's scary. Even just picking it up at your local drugstore is scary. I I remember this. I do remember this. We were all scared. (laughs) So all seven people took the pills on September 29th. Uh, The morning of September 30th, an attorney from Johnson & Johnson, they're the ones who make Tylenol, if you didn't know that, but he meets with the investigation team that found the cyanide, and by 10 a.m. on September 30th, there was a press conference to make people aware of the situation. And by three o'clock that day, Johnson and Johnson recall recalled all of the Tylenol from lot MC two eight eight zero. Chicago is in a state of panic. Oh yeah. The police are driving the streets with megaphones. Don't take Tylenol. You're kidding, really? Yeah. Who did that? Wow. The Boy Scouts were sent knocking on people's doors. To tell them, don't take Tylenol. Flyers were posted everywhere. I mean, you got to think this is before social media. So how do you get a hold of everybody to make sure people don't take something so simple as extra strength Tylenol? Jeez Louise. Over time, it becomes known as they're doing their investigation that it was not just batch MC2880 that was affected. At first, they're thinking MC2880 was the only one affected. And long story short, Johnson & Johnson told investigators, we do not have potassium cyanide on our premises in Pennsylvania, blah, blah, blah. Because they're thinking maybe somebody that worked there, disgruntled employee, or somebody put it in there. But then when they saw that it was from multiple batches, I think there was two different batches. And then again, Mary Reiner's story, that could have been a third third Mm -hmm. batch. Mm Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense that it happened on the premises because the other batch number was from Texas. But it all happened in Chicago. But it all happened in Chicago. Right. So another thing, too, is that potassium cyanide would actually start to eat through the plastic. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. And it all happened on the 29th. So whoever did this had to have placed it on the shelf the day before. It couldn't have been too long before these people picked it up because it would have eaten through the plastic holy smoke so uh, these batches that like whatever number you said 
are those just specifically sent to one area or are those batches sent to different areas in the United States? All over the United States. So that's why they kind of, that's why on October 4th, there was a nationwide recall of all Tylenol. Yeah. Yeah. Because even though there was the deaths in Chicago, they still couldn't quite figure out, was this coming from the Pennsylvania Mm-hmm. batch or mm-hmm. did this come from the texas batch or are there people working together is it all over the united states and it just hit chicago first or okay hold on it's not happening anymore now it's only in chicago like they were just kind of trying to figure out what the heck is going no on kidding yeah so like i said october 4th there's a nationwide recall of all tylenol that was over 31 million bottles of tylenol Jesus. and it was valued at more than 100 million dollars <gasps> Really? Yeah. And, you know, Johnson and Johnson will, they still kind of use that as like, trust us. Like we took a huge hit to save everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> Which I think, is true. I mean, that's a huge they make, hit. They made big changes after that too. Yeah. There actually was a bill and I will, uh, I mention it later, like the name of it and everything, mm-hmm. but that's why they have the tamper proof seals right. and everything on, yep. on it now. Yep. Mm-hmm. During the investigation, three bottles of extra strength Tylenol were discovered in the recall containing cyanide. Oh. Three extra bottles. Right, right, right. Two were brought in from people's homes, and one was still sitting on a shelf in a drugstore in Chicago. Can you imagine those people? Can you imagine being one of those people? No. Maybe they never knew. No. You know, they never knew that they turned those in because, oh my gosh. Police believe that whoever did this placed them on the shelves the day before. And I guess it's like a four hour drive if you were to hit all the drugstores where these were purchased. Oh. So this person either purchased the Tylenol or shoplifted the bottles, opened the capsules, put in the cyanide, then replaced the bottles on the shelves. They believe all that being done on September 28th. And they didn't know if it was one person or multiple people because some of the capsules were kind of shoved back together. Mm -hmm. and some of them were neatly put back together. So either it was one person who just got frustrated sometimes and shoved it right, and did it quickly, right. or it was two people where one knew what he was doing and the other one just kind of shoved it aggressively to close the capsule. Oh, gosh, how awful. So the investigation was really rough. The first thing the police really needed to do and focus on was protect the public. And what sucks is that when the recall happened and word spread, you had those idiots coming out of the woodwork for copycat crimes. No. I read that there were actually 270 copycat crimes within the month after the attack. No. Which could not have helped investigations like oh, at all. Not, not at all. Yeah, I remember everybody was scared to take any kind of medicine whatsoever over the, you know, over the counter medicine. Terrifying. I mean, it's just terrifying. Again, I mean, I. I reach for a Tylenol bottle and don't even think twice, but it's, that's just so scary to me. Just remember that in those days, <laughs> in my days, they didn't have that temper resistant stuff. Oh, I, I mean, know. They, you know, it wasn't sealed. It wasn't like anything. They had a cotton ball in there. That was No, it. exactly. And I was actually, get, I was thinking about this when I was cooking dinner tonight. Did you guys have those? Did you guys? <laughs> in my life, there's always been the tamper-proof seals even on like your seasonings and everything like that mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. it was that open too or has that always been sealed i didn't cook very much in those days 
But I, okay. you know, I, I don't, I mean, everything is sealed now. Even toothpaste, everything is. even toothpaste is sealed. So it's like, yeah, I don't remember. That. I just, I, I actually just was just going to say that because I opened a new toothpaste for, for Nolan tonight. Uh, Cause I didn't want him using the COVID infested <laughs> one that Aiden had been using. <laughs> And it had a seal, and I was like, "Man, I'm going to be noticing these seals on yeah, everything you will. now." Yeah, you will actually. Yeah, that's just crazy to me. And and so in this investigation, how do you narrow down who did this? How do you narrow this down? Now it's interesting, but video surveillance footage was looked over, just trying to see if there's anything. If they see somebody stealing some Tylenol or putting some Tylenol I was going back, to ask that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they didn't find anything, but you can go online and you can see this photo I'm going to discuss and we're going to have it on our website. But there's a photo out there from surveillance footage from when Paula Prince was purchasing her Tylenol bottle. There's a still image of the surveillance footage and you see her at the cash register in line in her flight attendant uniform. And there's this man and it's pretty eerie, but there's this man standing back behind her, maybe three aisles back, just staring at her. And she's oblivious to it. She's reaching for something. Of course. Oh, and he's watching her get the Tylenol? No, she's in that. She's in the cash register line. Okay. Okay. That's what I But she has said. the Tylenol already and he is just watching her. I mean, he is just staring at her. And some believe that this is the pill planter. Uh, You can go, you can look at it yourself. But you know how like a killer will show up at like a memorial service or funerals, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, police worked at all the funerals for the seven that died in hopes that the pill planter would show up there. But no. So he's standing like maybe two, three aisles away from her. She's oblivious of him. He's standing like it looks like his hands are just behind his back. Mm hmm. He has a beard with a mustache and he has this receding hairline. Some people say that they can see big glasses on him, but it's it's kind of a grainy image. Mm-hmm. Now, this case is unsolved. The pill planter has never been caught. But there are three possible theories that I want to share. First okay. is Roger Arnold. Now, this fool was chatty Kathy in a bar claiming <laughs> he did it. And actually, okay, see if you can follow me here. But he worked at a warehouse with Mary Reiner's dad. And Mary Reiner purchased her bottle, if you go with that resource. She purchased her bottle from a drugstore that was across the street from the psychiatric ward where Arnold's wife was a patient. Okay, okay. Searching his apartment, they found crime manuals. I don't know what that is. Uh, they found crime manuals. I don't know. They're Somebody busted crime into my manuals house. in yeah. our house too, honey. <laughs> Somebody busted into my house. I'd be in big trouble. <laughs> um, but they also found chemistry supplies, beakers, and mysterious powders. But there was not enough to arrest him. Shoot. The next guy, and this was kind of the guy... So a month after the Tylenol murders happened, a handwritten letter came to to a Johnson and Johnson facility. It basically claimed that they did it and that they needed one million dollars or they would kill again. Oh, no. They provided a bank routing number for the money to be sent to. Fingerprints were taken from the letter and the bank account was traced to a Frederick Miller McKay. And I do believe he had some ties to the Miller fortune. But the investigation led away from Frederick 
to a to his past employer tax consultant to his you guys confused yet okay so the bank supposedly belonged to a frederick miller mckay but the fingerprints didn't belong to him it all led back to this james william lewis who was frederick's old tax consultant okay his fingerprints were on the letter that was sent yeah james william lewis's were now lewis did admit to writing the letter and basically he was trying to frame Frederick because he believed Frederick had cheated his wife out of $511. So he put his name on that bank account to expose his old boss of theft, quote, hoping to embarrass him, unquote. Like, oh, honestly, geez. I don't understand this plan. It's really stupid. <laughs> but anyway, Lewis admits that he wrote this letter and actually Lewis had been charged with murder in 1978 in Kansas City when police found remains of a victim in his attic. Oh. However, however, the judge ruled that the search was done illegally because the police did not have a search warrant, so he got off on that. I hate that. But now, here he is doing all this with a letter trying to frame his old boss in Chicago. Mm-mm-mm. During the time of the murders, Lewis and his wife did not live in Chicago. They lived in New York City, where they worked a new gig of attempting to import pill-making machines from India to New York City. What? They had been hiding out in Chicago in early September, but during that small window of when the planting of the bottles and deaths occurred, he was in New York City with his wife. And because of that whole and that whole thing with like cyanide eating through the bottles, he couldn't have done it because he was in New York. Oh, so that's kind oh, of why okay, police okay. let him off. Okay. Interestingly enough, Lewis had a beard and a receding hairline. Honestly, he looks a lot like the guy standing behind Paula Prince in that grainy photo. Mm-hmm. Investigators wrote off the threatening letter and the murders as being two separate things, though. Uh, he was charged with extortion and he was charged with 20 years. While in prison, he actually offered help to the FBI explaining in detail, how someone would put cyanide in capsules. Oh my gosh. He walked them through it. So he served 13 years of his 20-year sentence. And actually, in 2010, he published a book titled Poison! Explanation mark. <laughs> okay. The Doctor's Dilemma. But he insists he had nothing to do with the Tylenol murders. Oh my gosh. Now you said there were three. Yep. The last theory, the one that interests me the most, is that the pill planter was Ted Kaczynski. I thought you were going to say Ted Bundy. (laughs) No. (laughs) Totally changes MO. (laughs) All right. Tell me about Ted. The Unabomber. If you didn't already know, he served a life in prison for killing three and wounding 23 people with bombs that he sent in the mail. Mm-hmm. Now, he was born and raised in Illinois, and his first bomb was actually in Chicago. Now, oh, yeah. what makes this theory really interesting is that there was another Tylenol death before all of the Chicago deaths. I believe two months before all the Chicago deaths. But the victim was J. Adam Mitchell. He was 19 years old. He was a janitor and he mysteriously just collapsed and died. And this actually happened in Sheridan, Wyoming. Oh. 
When investigators asked the goings-on, like before the death, his mom mentioned that he had taken an extra strength Tylenol. Tylenol. Now, like I said, this was two months before the Chicago Tylenol murders. So why is this tied together? Why has this been part of the theory? Well, Sheridan, Wyoming, where this happened, was very close to Kaczynski's cabin. Oh, no. And, oh, by the way, if you look at a map of where the Tylenols were purchased in Chicago, the center of it all is Kaczynski's parents' house. No way. Yeah. So they like, so like the theory is kind of like the, when a crime takes place or somebody's doing something bad, they want to go away from their home or lead Mm -hmm. investigators Mm -hmm. away from that. But if they keep doing it, it eventually will circle around Mm -hmm. their house because they're doing it or, you know, trying to avoid it. So the, the center of it all was Kaczynski's parents' house. Is that a coincidence or? But they, yeah, but the Wyoming one and that, that, Mm -hmm. and police usually don't believe in coincidences. Now, Kaczynski had expressed hatred in the past of producers and manufacturers of drugs and pills. Really? The only, the only thing that really fractures this theory is that Kaczynski, okay, well, he's one of those guys that wrote a manifesto. So he's kind of one of those guys who wants to, his claim and what he did. Yeah. And he never made any claims. And this is kind of something you'd think that he's already been put away for life. Like, You'd think he would have claimed this in his manifesto. How was he right? put away for life? Because he's the Unabomber. Oh, the the okay. I didn't put that. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. It's a drink. It's a drink. I finished it. Uh huh. Wow. So no one knows who did this. No one knows why. But the one positive that came from all of this is in 1983, Congress passed the Tylenol Bill. Which is why I can't open a dang Tylenol bottle to save my life. (laughs) The bill made it mandatory to have the tamper-proof or Mm -hmm. Beth-proof foil seal on all pill bottles. So, (laughs) there you have it. It's got the plastic on it. Then it has that stupid, well, I shouldn't say stupid, but it's got that lid that you can't open. And then it's got foil on it also so i mean i know and i always like oh i can use my nail to get this open and you can't (laughs) you just can't (laughs) that's all right this is better than some idiot oh is that just not terrifying though oh it's so scary just tears at you because this this person is just sick this person is still out there oh i I remember how scared we all were I, i do remember that i was in college Oh. Ugh, no. I know. Nope, 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 nope. If you lived through it, let us know. If you remember throwing away your Tylenol bottles, I w- I w- I'd love to hear, like, if you heard the megaphones going down the Chicago streets. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? No, that would be you just... just hear You just hear the police coming. Don't take Tylenol. <laughs> so. All right, Mom. What do you have for us? Okay. Top that, Mom. Well, I can't top it, but I'm totally going to. Never mind. Cliffhanger. Wow. <laughs> what are you going to do, Mom? <laughs> I opened the wrong one. You opened the wrong file. Okay. All right. So, I am going to tell you about the McPike Mansion, which is located in Alton, Illinois, which, by the way, is known as, quote, one of the most haunted towns in the U.S. 
Oh! <laughs> like, we haven't heard that one before. <laughs> I, that's the claim. That's what everybody claims. Uh, just saying. But this McPike mansion, on all accounts, is very active. And you'll know what I'm talking about because I think I watched this with you. Anyway, a little history. The mansion was built in 1869 for Henry McPike, who considered this his country home. He was a businessman and one-time mayor of Alton. The home has 16 rooms. Yep, his country home. 11 marble <laughs> fireplaces, uh, intricate carved trim, and carved wooden banisters. It's absolutely stunning. I could be COVID locked down in that. That sounds nice. <laughs> you have a lot of rooms. <laughs> the family owned 15 acres of land, which at the time was known as Mount Lookout Park. So it was on, high on a hill. Henry was an horticulturist, and his main interest was grapes for wine. And he actually came up with his own grape, which he named the McPike Grape. <laughs> Wow. I wish yeah. I could, like, make a grape. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we don't know enough about horticulture stuff. I don't know how easy that is to do. Make a grape. And guess what? I'd call it the Beth grape. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I bet that grape would taste great. The McPike, the McPike, <laughs> still thinking about the Beth grape. Okay. The McPike family lived in the home until 1936, and there have been several owners since that time. Bones, I think it's Bounds, no, Bones, yeah, it's B-O-W-N-S. I would say it's Bones, right? But it's not spelled like Bones. I don't know. Tell your story. <laughs> Bones Business College was there for a while. Then a man by the name of Paul Leihinger bought the mansion and rented rooms out. <laughs> you know, I think the Beth Grape would have like a lot of alcohol in it too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Paul bought the mansion and rented the rooms out. The house or mansion sat empty until the 1950s. There was some talk of just, just taking the whole thing down. I mean, this beautiful house, just ripping it out and replacing it with a shopping mall. Can you imagine? I, that would be terrible. But because of zoning issues, that was ruled out. Thank goodness. So the one house is big enough, is as big as a mall? It was on 15 acres. Ah, yeah. A yeah. mall. Yeah. <laughs> a mall. In June 1980, the mansion was actually listed on the National Register of Historic Places, but still sat abandoned. Between vandals, who over time cleared the house of anything of value. We're talking all the furnishings, the beautiful wooden banisters I mentioned earlier, and the toilets. Oh, of course. I mean, that is a necessity. I mean, all everything. Who would steal toilets out of an old house? I have no idea. But everything was just hey, was taken. an old toilet. Pretty cool. So between that, weather damage, and age, the mansion was in pretty bad shape. In August 1994, the mansion was auctioned off. Sharon and George Lepke won the bid and became the proud owners of a dilapidated mansion. 
But they love. E G Mary, what do you wish for? Do you want the moon? I just picture that house. <laughs> yeah, how dilapidated that was. But just listen, just just this is crazy. So oh. they love the house and the history, but I'm not sure if they really knew what they were getting into. They wanted to make the mansion a bed and breakfast and were told when they bid on the property that because it was a historic place, they would be able to get grant money to restore the mansion. Oh, that did not happen. Let me give you an idea as to what this couple was up against. To restore just one window cost about $2,000. Right, because it's a national historic, a historic thing now. Yeah. So they, mm -hmm. they have to keep it to that historic right. time period era. Cost. There's over 15 windows in this house, okay? Oh, wow. In 1994, when the Lutkeys bought the house, the estimated cost to historically restore the property was $1 million. That's the better way to say it, historically restore. Right, yeah. which th that's the only thing they can do. That was back in 1994, all right? So, oh, yikes. Yeah. Seeing that staggering amount, you can understand the Lutkeys needing those grants. Sharon and George must really love the place because they have stuck with it and have gradually restored it to its original state, but updated with lights and modern plumbing. In 2017, they were actually recognized with an award from the Alton Historical Commission for the work done on the sections of the mansion, which I think oh, is just wow. amazing. They haven't been in this uh, quest totally alone. They have gotten help from the community of Alton, but their help has primarily come from the other inhabitants of the mansion. Uh, what? <laughs> you see, unbeknownst... To the Lutkeys, when they bought the property, the house is very haunted. It has been estimated that there are more than 11 spirits in the mansion. There is, of course, the spirit of Henry McPike and his wife, Eleanor. Of it course. is possible that there are even Native American ghosts from the time before the mansion was even built. It is thought that there are spirits from the Underground Railroad that it ran around them that ran in that area <laughs> words so did you have some beth grape tonight <laughs> reports include spirits of servants a cook in the kitchen and some story of a woman in one of the bathtubs <laughs> not in white <laughs> not in white <laughs> and how have these spirits helped you ask <laughs> they've brought a thousand how wait they helped yeah how have they helped what do you think did they like paint the walls? Like no, what? they've brought in thousands of visitors to the mansion and a large number of paranormal How? investigators. <laughs> they send postcards. Come see us. I'm here. The mansion has been featured in series like um, "Scariest Places on Earth," uh, okay. "Factor Fiction," "Paranormal Files," and of course, dun, dun, dun. Zach's been there. Ghost Adventures. Yeah. Zach, Zach has been there. And I'm going to draw some collected data from the Ghost Adventures, of course, because I always do. McPike Mansion was the subject of an episode aired in 2019 on the Travel Channel. Hmm. Maybe now, it'll ring some bells when you explain it to me. Yeah, I think it will. Now, according to the Ghost Adventures episode, McPike's wife, Mary, 
was pregnant during the construction of the home. The baby did not live beyond four years, and nine months after the little boy died, Mary also died. Now, Oh, that's horrible. That was according, I'm going to clarify here, that was according to the Ghost Adventures, but I didn't read any of that anywhere else, so they must have had sources that I certainly did not have. Well, do they have like a historian or somebody that works? You know, that would make total sense. That would make total sense. They could and probably that, get their hands on like they really the local dig. library. Right. They really can like dig that. into history that we can't do that online. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there were some crazy things that happened throughout the interview. Zach spoke to a woman, Sandy Corba, who is a shaman. Sandy stated that for the most part, the spirits in the mansion are kind and welcoming, but not all of them. There are a few that do not like to play nicely. Sandy relayed the following story. One night, in the basement of the mansion, she felt something wet. Looking, she saw blood was running down her arm and dripping on the table. But after closer inspection, Sandy discovered that she wasn't even cut. There was no explanation for the blood that was dripping. It wasn't hers. When Zach and the crew were in the basement, the poor cameraman... You, like, never see the cameraman, right? No. No, you never see him. But he's in the basement. But like in the first Ghost Adventures, they only recorded They themselves. did it, right. But this poor guy, so he's in the corner filming this, and he complains, I'm really cold. And Zach walks over to him, and he goes, holy smokes, <laughs> freezing. Oh, and no. nobody else in the basement was that cold. That cameraman should write a book, like, behind the lens of Zach Bacon. <laughs> behind the lens. Oh, God. Or, uh, you know what I mean? I bet they have stories because it's not like the ghosts don't screw with them. Yeah, I don't know. It was just it was just weird that that he was the only one that was ice cold to the touch. They liked him. What was really a bit strange was that after filming the first day, the crew split up for the night, and the next morning they all were recalling nightmares that they had had the night before. Ooh, I don't like that. Yeah, like Aaron who said that in his dream, he and the crew were headed to the door to get out of the mansion, but they could never reach the door. Like something was following them, they were running, and the door was right there, but they could not get to the door. Oh, it's like the Holy Grail, Monty Monty Python. Python. Yeah. He remembered that everyone in his dream was terrified, but just could not get out of the house. It's suspected that there is a darker entity that disguises himself as a good spirit to human, and that maybe this spirit runs the rest of them. Like he's the boss. Ooh. Sharon, the owner, led Zach and the crew down a path into the woods. This might jog your memory. At that point, she shows them a crypt that had been broken into pieces. And the pieces were strewn throughout the area. The crypt was found empty. A little further down the path, Zach was led to a child's crypt. It too was found empty. Of course... Let's not jump to conclusions as Zach did. He said that is a good possibility that the people who broke into the two crypts and took the bones did so to perform satanic rituals in the house. <laughs> Worse. Sure, 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 sure. Yep. Oh, sorry, Zach, but you know. Both Shannon and Zach agree that the crypts have a link to what is going on in the house. There were some EVP readings that were interesting. There was a male voice that directed to, quote, take the path. 
Now, this was before Sharon even said anything about a path going through the woods. And you can hear it distinctly. It says, take the path. Back up. So whose crypts were these? Nobody knows. Oh, that's really sad. Nobody knows. There's nothing on them. It's, it's, It's just an above ground kind of... And how far away from the house are they? It's on the property. So I can't tell so you. All those vandals that came in to wreck the house probably made it, did this as well. I don't that's know really why sad. they took the bones. I mean, that's very sad. Well, satanic rituals, of course. <laughs> then there are two female voices and not sure if they were the same spirit or not. But the one EVP reading very distinctly said, you're going to get hurt. Oh, no. And the other said, oh, man. And the other said, I'm sad. It's awful. Now, the you're going to get hurt was very distinct also. It's just crazy. There was another part where Billy, Billy, your favorite, mm. states that he felt a cold breeze just gently go around him. And for some reason, <laughs> he said that it felt like a mom and a dad. And a few, sex, and a few seconds whoa, later, whoa. <laughs> and a few sexes later... felt like a mom and a dad and a few seconds later a child what was strange was that as he said those words the anomaly detector picked up two figures on either side of him and then when he mentioned the child a smaller form materialized in front of billy you know i think once you've done these investigations for so long you have to become a sensitive to it like i feel like when you're put in those situations you can like I don't know. It's a craft that I think. Well, I don't think that you'd write words out. I don't think you'd even be on the show if you didn't weren't a sensitive of some sort. So I don't know. But that was really that was really I mean, he really nailed that. That was just crazy. Crazy. That's really cool. All right. Billy moved up a peg for me. (laughs) The touching scene was broken when Billy cried out in pain. Something had. Oh, oh, listen. Moving back down. Something had (laughs) flicked his ear really hard. Oh, no. (laughs) He went down two pegs. Oh, man. Shortly after this scene, Aaron complained that his neck hurt and he was having trouble swallowing. Zach took a peek and saw that there was a big bump on Aaron's neck. And he goes, is that a cyst or something? To which Aaron responds that there was no bump on his neck until now. So, oh, no. What, what was the bump? It was like coming from inside out. Uh, I hope he went and got that checked out. Because, <laughs> you know, he ended up having brain cancer. Oh, he did? I didn't know yeah. that. He had a tumor removed off the back of his head. Oh. Like two years ago. Aaron. Oh. Okay. So I have to end with a funny moment. A funny Zach moment, of course. So he's getting, he's going up the steps. And I'll give him this. It is dark. He couldn't see a thing, but all of a sudden... In oh, his... I couldn't do that. When, they, when they're when they in, like, total darkness, I could not do that. Oh. That would be quite the show. It would not be a ghost hunting show. It would be a comedy show. <laughs> well, Beth in the dark. This kind of was, but I, I'm giving him points because, it, I mean, that would be just awful. Because in his words, he, quote, felt a deep vibrational fluttering. Oh. You know, the cameraman caught this thing going past him. And he like almost screams and he scurries down the steps, half screaming only to find that it was a bat that flew right oh. by his head. 
Okay, that's scary, though. That's what I'm saying. Now, I know in hindsight that was kind of funny, but have you ever had a bat fly at you? I have, and it was during the day, and it was just scary as heck. I almost fell off the ladder when it happened, so... I'm going to top you with that. I actually had a bat flown at me. Fly at me. <laughs> flown at you? <laughs> during a ghost investigation. And it was absolutely terrifying. terrifying. We in an abandoned hospital. And we were doing some seance stuff. And all of a sudden this friggin' bat just comes flying down and I was with my sister-in-law we hit the ground so fast and I, we just both lay there and Alex was standing there <laughs> what was that <laughs> <laughs> oh we laugh about it all the time because that was terrifying but can you imagine that happening in a in a building on the steps I mean that you know oh on the stairs yeah no. I was in an abandoned hospital I was already in that state of being scared right or right. you know on edge listening for ghosts and then a bat flew at me so I'm on team Zach here that's very scary yeah yeah it was just funny watching him you know this big dude screaming and going down the down the stairs you know but I totally can understand I, I totally understand unlike the time he was sitting <laughs> sitting on the stairs and asked the spirit come play with my balls remember that <laughs> yes I do I'm pretty sure that was in uh, the Velisca Axe murder house. I'll just always remember that. <laughs> That's so funny. Now, as for Sharon and George, the owners, they're keeping on, keeping on. Even with restoration completed, which they are not, it's an ongoing deal. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But they still have the regular upkeep the home owners have, you know, so it's money to restore that they need you know to finish the restoration but they also have i mean everyday upkeeps you know sure. the, the, the grounds have to old, be yeah. taken care of the roof has to be fixed you know i mean just i don't know how they do it but with mcpike mansion being one of the most haunted places in alton which is the most <laughs> haunted city in the u.s people are actually oh, I... coming from all over in hopes of capturing an EVP or snapping one of the many pictures. And, and if you get on, you know, websites and stuff, you can see that there are a lot of pictures which document orbs and strange lights, mists, shadow figures, etc. Oh, McPike Mansion is on Albee Street in Alton and is said to be very haunted. So go visit. And if you have gone, I would love to hear your experience. I really want. If you were chased by a bat. I want to know if you're chased by a ghost, a spirit. I just want to know these things because I yeah. haven't experienced it. So I want to know. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the critical one, you know. Dying to take you out. Dying. Dang COVID. Ugh. Started the episode talking about it and here we are again. Sorry. <laughs> All right. All right. Send us your pictures and we can even post your pictures on our website yeah hey you want us to you know uh, send us your experience and we can even post that oh yeah that'd be fun yeah send us your experience even with the tylenol murders send me your experiences yeah that'd be really cool to hear what you guys had to do or if you remember it or anything like that so send them to us and we'll post them on our website killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com and you can find us on social media as well. That's the uh, rundown. We're on TikTok now, aren't we? Yep, we're on TikTok. 
All right. Mm-hmm. We're closing in on 100. We are. Next week is going to be episode 97. Mom's doing the true crime. I'm doing the paranormal. And we will be covering the state of Alabama. Yep. Per request from one of our listeners. Yep. All right. Well, another good episode, Mom. Yes, it was. Definitely. And my phone didn't die, which is really good because I got two notices saying low battery. (laughs) Yeah, well, you go off and enjoy Hawaii. I got to go check on my COVID patients. All right. Well, cheers. Virtual cheers, Mama. Cheers. I love you, kid.